This episode of Geeks Crossing is brought to you by today's sponsor, Anchor. Ever wanted to start a podcast but can't find the right platform to work with? Don't worry, Anchor has you covered. Anchor is a free audio app that allows you to record a podcast on any device no matter where you are. Anchor includes an editing feature that allows you to customize your podcast, whether it be on your computer or mobile device, so you can easily omit any errors or unnecessary parts. Anchor also allows you to distribute your podcast to other platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even Google Podcasts, which is amazing. Did I mention the part about making money? No? Well, you could be earning money every time someone listens to your podcast with no minimum listenership. If that's not the easiest way to make a podcast, I don't know what is. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. What's up, everybody? This is Matt from Geeks Crossing. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, pretty much all I watched were cartoons. Um, I mean, yeah, Sesame Street, Bear in the Big Blue House, they really weren't cartoons. And as I got older, there was Drake and Josh, iCarly. But most of the time, for little Matt, it was all cartoons, all the time. Uh, that being said, we're not here to talk about my favorite cartoons as a kid. 2020 is more than halfway over now, which is weird for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, namely because with everything going on in the world, particularly months of quarantine, it honestly felt like time stood still for a while. But also because I feel like it was just yesterday we were all celebrating the arrival of the new decade. And with it, the end of another uh, the, t- the 2010s were a crazy decade, to be sure, and especially for animation. This is the decade that started with Toy Story 3, one of the best films Pixar ever made, and ended with Toy Story 4, which was definitely not one of the best films Pixar ever made. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the 2010s revolutionized animation in a lot of ways. I grew up on cartoons as a kid. I kept watching them into the 2010s. Uh, so today I figured I would go through my top 10 cartoons of the 2010s and explain why I feel this way. Keep in mind, Toy Story comparisons aside, we're going through shows here, not movies. Um, and of course, this is all my opinion. Full disclosure, there's no anime on here. I've never really been much of an anime guy, Pokemon notwithstanding. Um, and final warning, there will be spoilers for the shows you hear about on this list. I'll try to kind of tone back a little bit, but I, I might slip up. There might be some uh, little stuff here or there. Um, warning. <laughs> Fair warning. Um, so before I start the true top ten list, I want to go through some honorable mentions that came close to making it. I may have gotten a bit carried away with how many I decided to include. Uh, there may be like four or five on here, but hey, there were a lot of cartoons in the 2010s. This is just... 15 of them, I guess. All right, so we're going to start with Over the Garden Wall. Uh, it is a tremendous, amazing miniseries. It's so perfectly stylized, the perfect amount of quirkiness, not too little to make it bland, not too much to make it obnoxious. The New England autumnal aesthetic is so, so niche, which in turn makes the show a total original. And the art style and animation, they're fluid and gorgeous. Uh, alas, I decided to disqualify it from this list because it is a miniseries, and this list I'm really only counting full realized series. Um, and its status as a short miniseries really does make it seem rushed at times, as I found when I rewatched it with my brothers a month or so ago. So for that, it loses a few points in my book. But again, don't get me wrong, Over the Garden Wall is still incredibly important to the animation industry and a perfect example of creator-driven content. But I needed to narrow down this option somehow, so miniseries were disqualified. Don't worry, it's still an amazing show, you should watch it. Uh, what else? Dan Versus is an amazingly underrated, super witty show. Does not get the credit it deserves. I think it aired like 2012, 2013. 
the animation has not aged very well in less than 10 years, but it has solid writing. It has a solid voice cast. I love Maurice LaMarche. He's so funny. Robot and Monster was another pseudo-honorable mention. He's the robot in that. But no, Dan versus. It's just a very fun cartoon, worth the watch. I don't even know where you'd see it anymore, because I think it was on The Hub, and I don't think The Hub exists anymore. Um, hopefully it's somewhere, because it's a great show. Uh, Rick and Morty, another honorable mention. This might surprise you. I'm sure a lot of you thought this was going to maybe make the list of the best shows of the 2010s, or the best cartoons. Uh, it's a creative concept. It has some really clever writing, but it just really never blew me away, to be honest. I was never big on the art style. I found the characters just got more irritating to me as the show went on. Um, to be fair, I am a season behind right now, so my thoughts on Rick and Morty could very well change. As of right now, though, I'm not ready to give it a spot on this list. But again, it is really good writing. Some really funny episodes. The the one where where there's the parasites that like make you believe that they're your loved ones, and there's just a whole cast of funny characters around the house. That was a really funny episode. Um, probably my favorite that stands out to me. But again, it's just, I don't know, not really my cup of tea usually. It's a little obnoxious. Uh, and Fish Hooks, <laughs> a really fun show. It legitimately feels like a Disney Channel sitcom turned to pen and ink. Um, and if they were all fish in a pet store, I guess. Uh, some pretty great voice acting. This is the show that introduced me to Justin Roiland uh, as Oscar, of course. And all star cast of writers and directors, I didn't even realize. Royland's on there, Mr. Warburton, the creator of Codename Kids Next Door, who worked on it as well. And C.H. Greenblatt, the guy behind Chowder, worked on it too. Um, but I don't know, it's not really worthy, in my opinion, of the list. Uh, but speaking of C.H. Greenblatt, the final honorable mention is his second show, Harvey Beaks. Uh, it was done dirty by Nickelodeon. It was narrowly edged out on this list. Um, it is an amazing children's show. Uh children to early tween show i guess one of the few shows of the 2010s i can actively say i really want to show my future children even while they're young because this list i guess there's a lot of ones that it might be a little too mature um basically it's just a bunch of animal kids going on adventures it's what clarence promised it would be um except harvey beaks also has a very crisp art style pretty solid humor i i didn't really get that from clarence as it went on uh, if anything, Harvey Beaks can be a little childish. That's why I would show it to my children young. Um, but as the show explores childhood, I don't really find that a problem. It, it's it's just a very great, great piece of uh, animation. Art style is great, too. Oh, my gosh. I think I already said that. All right. Um, you guys ready? Because we are now about to get to the actual top ten, starting with number ten, The Legend of Korra. Um, <laughs> everyone's talking about Avatar nowadays, I know. Um it's funny, when I was beginning to organize this script a few days ago, I had Legend of Korra as an honorable mention, and Harvey Beaks was number 10 on the list. Uh, but then, by complete coincidence, I ended up talking about the show with my friends that same evening, and just from talking about the characters and the villains and which seasons were the best, I realized I had been selling the show short. Look, The Legend of Korra had a lot to stand up to. I first saw Avatar in late 2019. I fell in love with it. I missed it when I was a kid. But it's probably a contender for the best cartoon of the 2000s. Easily. Easily. Oh, I love that show. Uh, but So when me and my buddies watched Legend of Korra right after, I don't really know what I was expecting. Um, the show is inferior to The Last Airbender in every way, of course, as anyone would tell you. Um, some of the characters can be unlikable. I've personally found Mako and, and Korra herself to be kind of grating at times. 
even after rewatching the show a second time, I, I have to wonder about some of the plot developments, like the spirit world, how, how important they chose to make that. It was a brief aside in the original series now and then, and then it became one of the most important parts of the lore. I don't know. Something about The Last Airbender felt much more concrete. Aang had to deal with the consequences of his absence in the real world. There were no whimsical little fairies flying around that could help stop the Fire Lord. Contrast that with The Legend of Korra, where the Avatar doesn't have to deal with actual humans in the actual world, but also, like, annoying talking meerkats and stuff in the spirit world. And I don't know. The believability factor that accompanied the world building in The Last, Avatar, the Last Airbender kind of gets harmed as a result. Uh, for me, I-, I could also talk about the underwhelming moments of some of the finales, namely the season two finale, which is Unalak, probably the worst villain in all of Avatar, seemingly evil just for the sake of being evil. He has a big kaiju fight with giant Korra, and then Tenzin's daughter appears a big butterfly and offers support. Even saying it doesn't seem real. But in the season four finale, epic as it was, it really did not provide a satisfying end to the show the way The Last Airbender did. It's like it, it provides a good end to the season, but not the series. The season's big bad is defeated, there's a wedding, you know, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's it just, the end of the whole series is just so underwhelming. Um, but here's what you'll notice, here's what you'll notice, and this is a little unfair of me, but out of all my complaints, they tend to stack the show up against its predecessor. Uh, to an extent, that's fair. The show is set in the same world, it tries to recapture the same fans of the original to see what happens next, so it deserves to be held against The Last Airbender in, in many ways. Same creator, same writer... That can be a good thing, too, though. Every time an old character shows up or gets mentioned, you feel that rush. You're like, yes, it's Sokka! You're like, no way, Zuko, Katara, whatever! And the flashback seasons in season one were so satisfying in that regard. Tenzin and his family as a window to Aang were some of the best moments of the show. You got Tenzin's brother and sister, you have Tenzin's kids. Just great, lovely. Tenzin's feeling towards his father, they're some of the best emotions the show produces. Uh, even the parallels between the two series are kind of cool, um, even when they're subtle. So, for example, you have a militaristic Earth Kingdom in Season 4 of Korra, and it can remind you of Ozai's Fire Nation in the original series. Uh, but plenty of times when Korra stands on its own, it is truly impressive. It doesn't need to just lean on the original. I did say some of the characters are annoying, but others are truly great. Uh, Tenzin and his family I already mentioned. Bolin deserves credit as well. And that's not even mentioning Varric and Zuli, who are probably the best characters in the show. They're the highlights of a largely terrible second season. And even Korra, though she can be a little unlikable at times, like I said, she has a natural progression arc, and it really feels real, and it does a lot for her. The villains are incredible. I was spotty about each season having its own villain after the laudable, overarching villainy of the Fire Lord and the Last Airbender. But like all the other new additions to the world of Avatar, I, I stepped back, let Korra do its thing, and the results were surprising. Um, Amon is a really cool villain with fascinating motives. Unalak, well, we don't, we don't really need to talk about Unalak. There's an exception to every rule, right? Uh, Zaheer and his gang are probably the most interesting and intimidating villains in the world of Avatar, like, entirely. Um, and Kuviera is a very unique and fascinating foe. I really love how the characters play around with her. Like, they're not really sure if what she's doing is villainous or if it's like, technically right for her country it's really cool that moral ambiguity that they address for the fourth season at the beginning at least before she takes a giant robot and goes to town um spoilers and the world building oh it really guarantees the spot on this list it is truly amazing it's what pushes the show over the edge some people uh they're a little uneasy about the onset of modern technology well not modern i guess modern as in the modern period the modern era 
technology in Korra as opposed to its predecessor. I think it's just really cool. The whole first season is pretty much like, here's Republic City, here's what the world is like now. The decaying monarchy of the Earth Kingdom that leads to the anarchy in books three and four is believable. It's a natural transition from the noble-hearted but dim-witted Earth King in the original Avatar. Uh, the water tribes get a fair amount of development, which is sort of interesting, but the second season as a whole really isn't that good, and most of the water tribe politics come down to Unalak is evil, so the northern water tribe is evil too, and they're just evil for the sake of being evil, so whatever. And the Fire Nation straight up appears for like five seconds, which kind of sucks in my opinion. Uh, come to think of it, the Fire Lord has one line in the show, Zuko's grandson appears, you get really hyped, it's like, oh my gosh! Um... Spoiler alert, his name is Iroh, and it's like, oh, it's so cool! He shows up, and he shows up like three episodes in the whole show. It, it, it's just such a waste. I, I don't know what it was that the writers utilizing the Fire Nation. Uh, all in all, there is a lot holding Korra back. Uh, there's some weak main characters, jumping the shark with the spirits, an intensely mediocre second season and final scene, plenty of underutilized elements, which keep it low on the list, but there are some awesome fight scenes. The one at the Northern Air Temple at the end of the third season takes the cake for me with that amazing death... Oh my god. Um, the great supporting characters outweigh the mediocre ones. Season 3 and 4 are truly awesome from a writing perspective. Any and all links to the past series are handled beautifully, and the world building is absolutely tremendous. The Legend of Korra has earned its spot, in my opinion, as the 10th greatest show of the 2010s. And I promise they will not all be this long. <laughs> we move on to number 9, uh, which is Battle for Dream Island. So a lot of you probably have no idea what the heck that is, and those of you who do, you probably have a lot of issues with me putting it ahead of Korra, let alone ahead of some of the honorable mentions, but to those of you, I promise BFDI's placement here has its meaning, and for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, allow me to explain. In 2010, two kids named Michael and Carrie decided to post a Total Drama Island parody animation on YouTube featuring 20 inanimate objects uh, with little arms and legs competing for a fantastic prize the island of paradise known as Dream Island. And yes, that's right, the contestants are literally just inanimate objects uh, with self-explanatory little names like Fiery, Snowball, Leafy, Coiny, etc. <clears throat> the show starts off a bit bumpy. Very clear it's being made by a couple 12-year-olds new to animation and writing, but it finds its pace surprisingly quickly. It's goofy, charming, it takes full advantage of the random humor that defined the early 2010s internet content without ever really becoming dated. It established and maintained its own identity. And this is this is one reason why I put it ahead of Korra. Whereas Korra occasionally dances around between whether or not it wants to be Avatar The Last Airbender Part 2, Battle for Dream Island never tries to be Total Drama Island, or, or anything that it's not. It's BFDI, it knows it's BFDI, it has no reason to try and be anything else, and it creates a very unique show with a very special charm and wit. I mean, what, what else do you expect from a show where little inanimate objects, like little golf balls and tennis balls, run around, complete challenges, form alliances, they kill each other <laughs> with about as much gore as you'd expect from an ice cube getting melted, you know, they have like their own little recovery centers where they all come back to life. Um, though there are, were several hiatuses through the decade, BFDI is still going strong, now in its fourth season. This is another attribute that makes BFDI so special for me, honestly, and just one of the most impactful cartoons of the decade. Um, it has not only continued on, its creators have played around constantly with the art style, the animation. The series has amassed hundreds of millions of views on YouTube, and it has even spawned and endorsed some copycats, creating a genre of its very own on YouTube in the object show community, which ranged from completely amateur to actually semi-professional. 
Um, and sure, at the end of the day, it's a little show where pencils and matches and bubbles take part in insane challenges, which does keep it down at number nine, of course. But the trajectory from two little kids' pet project into a series that has amassed hundreds of mimics and hundreds of millions of views, grouped with its original style of humor and animation, it guarantees it a spot on here for me. It's the only show on here, on this whole list of the top ten, that is not professionally made with the help of a network or anything. And I, I just find that so inspiring. It makes the impact it has had all the more impressive in my eyes. Even though it is kind of silly, it's just so silly in its own way, in its own unique, lovely way. And I, I really respect that. If you haven't watched it and you're in the mood to get into something that's all around goofy in its own profoundly original way, proudly original way, I highly recommend it. It's on YouTube, BFDI, Battle for Dream Island. Go give it a watch. That's my recommendation. Along with the other 10 on this list, including number 8, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. This is another one that probably came out of nowhere. Uh, if you're a big cartoon fan, I feel like this list has been full of surprises. Except maybe Korra. We'll reach some more traditionally lauded cartoons soon. They'll make up the remaining bulk of this list, but eh, maybe there's still some more surprises to come. One of those surprises is Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. I can certainly attest, because I had literally heard nothing about this show at all. Like, I never even heard of it. Although I, I guess I was only like 12 when it came out, but I, I had heard nothing of it until one of my brothers brought it up while we were looking for a new show to binge on Netflix. He said it was supposed to be really good, so we gave it a watch. Uh, honestly, the big reason why it's so low is because I finished it a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, and I fear that I could be potentially thinking so highly of it because it was the last TV show I watched. But man, what a cartoon. Mystery Incorporated follows the exploits of everyone's favorite meddling kids as they solve mysteries in their hometown, all while unraveling a dangerous, overarching mystery. I'm particularly surprised because this is, you know, a Scooby-Doo reboot. I love Scooby-Doo, of course. It's an American classic. But I think we can all agree it's not exactly a critical masterpiece. It's, it's a bunch of teenagers solving episodic mysteries. Great for a fun time, but I don't know about a critical darling. Uh, and that's just the original. I would be remiss not to mention that the Scooby-Doo IP has been dragged through the mud, man. It's been rebooted like nine times, including those horrifying James Gunn movies, that new Scooby-Doo cartoon that looked like Family Guy. Uh, with the onset of Scoob this year, which my family watched as a movie night, I think, when it came out, uh, I found it mediocre. I mean, it's probably just because it's geared towards kids, but Scooby-Doo as a reboot idea tends to be challenging, just with all the bad examples. But let me tell you, Mystery Incorporated is a game changer for the Scooby-Doo IP. I can't believe I'm speaking so seriously about a talking dog with a speech impediment and a big appetite, but you know what I mean. In fact, Mystery Incorporated was so good, it made me hate Scoob by the time I finished it, for how much it took away from the mystery game. I promise I'll leave Scoob alone after this, but it serves as a very helpful example of what to do wrong. Shaggy and Scooby, you know, they're probably the most iconic characters of the Scooby-Doo gang. They have the most fleshed-out, realized personalities. They're the goofiest with their, their cowardice and their iconic catchphrases. Scoob ran with this, um, the movie Scoob, making the movie pretty much just about them, while avoiding developing the rest of the gang. They make Fred into a generic, like, oh, dude, bro, and Velma just becomes, you know, ah, oh, smart science girl. I don't even think Daphne had any lines, like... Well, she must have, because they were very particular about picking celebrity voice actors. But they did the three of them did nothing. And then contrast that with Mystery Incorporated, it's night and day. Instead of realizing Shaggy and Scooby are the iconic duo and making it all about them, 
I think they still realize that Shaggy and Scooby are the most popular characters, but they used it to flesh out Fred, Daphne, and Velma. They made them interesting and fun. Fred, in particular, he becomes a total original. He's like this nerdy jock who loves traps, <laughs> uh, trap technique, uh, but he's still the bold, strong leader of the mystery gang. I, my brothers and I agreed throughout that he was the best character. He's just awesome. Uh, did you know, actually, fun fact, the voice actor of Fred, Frank Welker, he's been doing Fred's voice since... The show aired in 1969. Since the first Scooby-Doo iteration, it's been Frank Welker, including in Mystery Incorporated. I thought that's so cool. That's that's dedication. Uh, Daphne and Velma's characters harken back more to the original series. Daphne is sort of like the love-struck rich girl. Velma is back to being the brains of the team, but not as, you know, uh, not as dumbed down as they made it in Scoob. Sorry, Scoob again. Uh, both of these avenues get explored more in Mystery Incorporated. Shaggy and Scooby are not ignored. They both incorporate plenty to the comedy and the overarching plot. And the plot! You would never expect to watch Scooby-Doo for its story. And yet that is what Mystery Incorporated deserves to be remembered for most of all, alongside its characters, maybe. It perfectly blends the classic Scooby-Doo episodic mystery solving, ripping off the bad guy's mask at the end of the episode and everything. It, it, it classically just blends that with an actual supernatural story arc that traverses two seasons. They they actually did Gravity Falls before Gravity Falls. Overarching supernatural mysteries in a weird small town renowned for its weirdness, enigmatic villains and supporting characters complete with a multi-part season finale where an evil interdimensional creature breaks free and wreaks havoc on the world. I could literally be talking about either cartoon. <laughs> Uh, the whole plot that involves the original mystery-solving team from decades earlier, and they reunite, that's super interesting. The main villain, Professor Pericles, is genuinely intimidating in the world of the show. A solid voice cast that just doesn't involve grabbing celebrities, and that is my last dig at Scoob. I'm sorry, Scoob. Lovable characters, interesting mysteries, respect for the original formula, not afraid to take risks and do new things, a lot of heart. All that helped make this probably the best iteration of Scooby-Doo critically. Yeah, some of the show's interdimensional wonkiness is handled a bit confusingly, um, which is probably why the original series strayed away from the actual supernatural. It did end up hurting the finale, I feel like, a little bit, because things kind of just get solved rather abruptly, and they're like, oh, well, supernatural stuff. And that does keep it a little further down. Um, but overall, Mystery Incorporated's strengths, they outweigh its faults. Uh, as of July 2020, the show is on Netflix. It is definitely worth a watch, so go ahead. Uh, we get to number seven now, which is actually, plot twist, a tie between regular show and the amazing world of Gumball. Having a tie is kind of a cop-out, but I genuinely feel these shows go hand-in-hand, hand, especially from a history perspective, an animation history perspective, and I happen to be a history lover. Cartoon Network released some great shows in the late 2000s, but the network was still sort of suffering, partly due to a slew of live-action experiments. Remember when Cartoon Network... Like a million live-action shows. Uh, uh, it damaged the network's reputation. So at the start of the 2010s, they were not getting the attention that any of the heavy-hitting cartoon cartoons had been raking in when the network launched. Fittingly, uh, the final cartoon cartoon ended in 2009, I think, with Ed, Ed and Eddie's big picture show and ended the series. But that's enough history for one day. The network needed a hit. Adventure Time was that hit, as all cartoon lovers will know. Um, and it got people talking about the network again, but Cartoon Network needed to prove that it wasn't a one-trick pony. So Regular Show and The Amazing World of Gumball provided two creative new shows, cartoons that would come to be staples on the network during their runs, 
And with an actual lineup of multiple good cartoons instead of just Adventure Time, a new wave of attention rushed upon the network. But this it isn't just the show's help-saving-a-classic-animation-network that puts regular show and Gumball on this list. Both shows are genuine, witty, and cynical in the best ways. Both of them share similar faults, and between their shared strengths and weaknesses, I believe tying them was just more than fair in all the avenues. Also, probably just because I wanted to squeeze as much stuff on here to talk about, because I love... I'm such a cartoon nerd. Regular show, if you didn't know, follows the various misadventures of perpetual slackers Mordecai and Rigby, anthropomorphic blue jay and raccoon, as they work in the public park of a small city. The Amazing World of Gumball features an anthropomorphic blue cat who attends school with his brother and sister and whose family frequently gets into crazy shenanigans. Of course, both shows do not have the same exact strengths. Regular show is much better at storytelling and character development, really making its viewers care about its colorful cast. Uh, while Gumball excels with its comedy, which is very witty, often actively satirical, a lot of laugh-out-loud moments from Gumball, Regular Show has a nice art style. Gumball is famous for its use of dozens of different art styles for its various side characters. A real highlight of the show is just looking at that. Um, the characters in both shows are lovable. Regular Show's entire supporting cast is just amazing. Benson, Skips, Pops, Muscle Man... High Five Ghost really doesn't do a whole lot, but, you know, he's there, too. They're hilarious. Gumball's enormous ensemble always keeps viewers laughing. Uh, though some of their strengths are different, their faults are the same, which is, you'll come to hear this a lot on this podcast, seasonal rot. Eventually, regular show got too caught up in Mordecai's love life for its own good, and the more self-contained episodes simply got less funny. The, it didn't help that the writers jumped the shark by explaining rather abruptly, spoiler alert, that a newer character, introduced in one of the best episodes of the whole series, was actually a Russian spy the whole time. It, it, it felt like they just didn't have anything to write for him, so they're just like, oh, let's just write him out. He's a Russian spy the whole time. So dumb. Uh, there is something to be said for regular show's final season, where the park gets sucked into space. <laughs> it was a good time for the most part. Regular show at its most charming. Though I, I think it would have felt more impactful if the Big Bad wasn't just introduced for the final season, if he was like actually around before then. Still, good season, fantastic finale. Um, and then The Amazing World of Gumball's comedy, its main resource, got stale. That's what happened to It with Seasonal Rot. For those of you who might not be cartoon-led like uh, aficionados, Seasonal Rot is just, I think, when, when cartoons go on too long. Think of The Simpsons. <laughs> um yeah, so it got stale. Its cynicism and social commentary became very on the nose, weirdly enough. I would not really expect Gumball. If somebody told me a show on Cartoon Network that would be too on the nose, I would say maybe Steven Universe. <laughs> I would not have predicted Gumball. Uh, it didn't even have the benefit of a satisfying finale like regular show did, so it pretty much ended on a cliffhanger. Still, both shows had the nerve to actually end instead of just rotting away to this day. <coughs> Simpsons. Uh, excuse me. So kudos to both of them, and to be clear, the shows were still quite decent, even as the quality declined. Later Gumball and later regular show were still pretty enjoyable if you gave it a watch. If you think about the Cartoon Network of the 2010s, these are two shows that have to come to mind to most people. They've come to symbolize the decade in the best possible way for the network. Let's get to number six, DuckTales 2017. That's right, believe it or not, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated is not the only reboot on this list. DuckTales, the incredibly popular show from the 90s, Though, for my generation, uh, which I was which was born long after, I think it's probably only famous for its theme song. <laughs> but it was actually rebooted in the 2010s. I don't know if a lot of people know that. I've been aware of the 2017 reboot since it came out, I think. I paid it little mind. 
Then, while my brothers and I were scrolling through Disney+, Plus, looking to entertain ourselves in the midst of quarantine, it popped up, and we all agreed to give it a try. This was a great move on our part, because the show turned out to be excellent. Remember how I called Mystery Incorporated Gravity Falls before Gravity Falls? DuckTales 2017 is Gravity Falls after Gravity Falls. It's much closer. Gravity Falls ended in 2016, and then one year later, we get another serialized show about mystery-solving siblings staying at their uncle's house on the very same network. <laughs> you can't tell me that's just a coincidence. Uh, we may as well delve into the characters. They're one of DuckTales' strongest attributes. I remember when the show first aired, hearing Huey, Dewey, and Louie weirded me out because I grew up in an era, I'm sure you all know, um, where they all had the same voice actor, and all three of them were kind of just interchangeable. Um, that's kind of just how it classically was done, but it's nice seeing them all have their own likes, dislikes, personalities. That's one of the best things the show does, is flesh out these three bland ducks. And the voices really help. Who doesn't love Ben Schwartz? He's a riot. The characters who make up so much of what makes this show wonderful, uh, I'm trying to think. Scrooge is great. Uh, Launchpad's hilarious. It's just a fantastic way to reintroduce these classic characters. Oh, Flintheart Glomgold. Darkwing Duck is in there. It's just crazy. Um, all while introducing new characters, too, occasionally. Mark Beeks, the freaking Mark Zuckerberg bird. Uh, he became like a meme among my brothers and I. Uh, DuckTales has a lot going for it. Really cool comic book aesthetic art style, which is awesome to look at. Solid voice cast. Great writing. It really does feel like a lot of the folks who worked on Gravity Falls moved on to make DuckTales when it ended, which is just, it's awesome. Uh, we're halfway done. We're at number five with Wander Over Yonder. For a network rightfully mocked for its lack of quality programming, when Disney Channel churns out a good cartoon, they sure churn out a good cartoon. I mean, we just talked about DuckTales, Fishhooks is on my honorable mentions. That's already three right there. I, I, if you'd told me my favorite cartoons were from Disney Channel, I would not have believed you. But here we are. <laughs> Wander Over Yonder is the product of animation legend Craig McCracken, best known for the Powerpuff Girls and one of my all-time favorite shows growing up, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. So when this new show got announced, the little kid in me was ecstatic. Sure, there was a ton of drama behind the scenes. Disney ended up canceling Wander Over Yonder before its rightfully deserved third season, but that's a can of worms in and of itself. Let's just talk about what Wander Over Yonder accomplished in its two seasons. I chose to put it above DuckTales, despite the former probably having a more complex story through its seasons, uh, just because Wander Over Yonder is so perfectly unique. And if there's one thing I love, as you could tell from a YouTube cartoon getting on here, it's just when shows are unique and impactful, is why BFDI got on there too, but we're going backwards. A show has to be more than just unique. Few things annoy me more than when a show is so original that it has to rub it in your face. Like, look how quirky and different we are. Um, that's why Steven Universe isn't on this list. No offense to Steven Universe fans. Love you guys. This is my list, though, and that Steven Universe isn't getting anywhere near it. But I digress. It's clear Craig McCracken had a lot of fun with the world of Wander Over Yonder, which follows the adventures of the perpetually happy, furry little guy named Wander, who traverses the galaxy on his talking steed Sylvia while hunting, while being hunted by the villainous Lord Hater and his workaholic deputy, Commander Peepers. The characters, those four especially, they're so silly and memorable. They play off each other so well. Lord Hater is so funny. I love it. Keith Ferguson does the voice. He's uh, blue in Fosters. So good to see that he stuck around. <sighs> Excuse me. Um, 
the animation is so fluid. Oh, I, I love the animation, the art style. The whole thing feels like a spiritual successor to Foster's, but with, like, technology from a decade later because it's new uh, animation technology. The There is an overarching plot to some extent. I think in both seasons they, they have a season one and then a season two plot that's different. It's sort of like how DuckTales did it. It's not that strong. It's there. It can pique viewers' interest. The second season is probably better known for this, I think, with Lord Dominator. Uh, I always found Lord Hater's battle to be the best villain in the galaxy. Very funny, just how with, with all the other space villains, they all have like their own leaderboard. It, it's so funny. Uh, what really makes Wander Over Yonder is its self-contained episodes, though, not the overarching ones. So those are great too. But I I haven't watched the show in a hot minute. But many of the episodes I remember are the ones that don't affect the story at all. Um, in probably my favorite episode, Wander tries to pay for a drink at a convenience store for Sylvia, but his niceness keeps making him, like, give away the money. I think at some point there's, like, a little, one of those little bins in the convenience store, like, take a penny, leave a penny, and he sees, like, a charity bin, he puts it all in there. He lo- it, It's just such a fun little episode, let me think. Oh, oh, there's another great one. Lord Hader moves to the distant planet Suburban 5 to hide out from the season's big bad, and it turns out his rival supervillain, Emperor Awesome, is his next-door neighbor. The whole thing plays out like a sitcom episode with a laugh track and everything. It's just so original. It's so goofy. I love it. Wonder Over Yonder is on Disney+, Plus, so if you've got Disney+, Plus, you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. It's only two seasons. It's so special, so fun. It's a show that I've genuinely been meaning to rewatch for years. I guess now I have no excuse. Um, number four! Adventure Time, which I brought up earlier. I teased it. You guys all knew this would have to be here at some point. The show that saved Cartoon Network, one of the pioneers of intensely serialized Western animation, after Avatar, of course. The poster child of 2010's animation, we have Adventure Time. For a while, I considered this my favorite cartoon of all time. A combination of getting older, rethinking other shows, and discovering new shows has changed that. But first to fourth is not terrible and this show continues to hold a special place in my heart for those of you who don't know adventure time sees finn the human and jake the dog rescue princesses battle villains embark on epic quests and a lot of times just veg in this post-apocalyptic fantasy world uh with lovable side characters bemo princess bubblegum lemon grab lumpy space princess and of course ice king who's like the best they round out the supporting cast i have a feeling you already knew that though because Adventure Time is pretty big. The show suffers from the same problems regular show and Gumball did, seasonal rot. Though I would compare it more to regular show on that front, Adventure Time doesn't get obnoxious, it just gets boring. There's some solid late series episodes every now and then. Uh, trying to think, there's one where there's a candy person that wanders off into the desert, and I think he keeps cloning himself and sacrificing himself over and over again so he can win awards, and then by the end he's just this big amalgamation of <laughs> this this guy. I think his name is like Steve or James or something. Um, that's a fun one. Uh, but honestly, I really don't remember any of the other ones. I, I have to rewatch this show too, but there's a lot. Um, let me think. Yeah, two, 274 episodes. Things get a little stale. Series finale was good. Real tearjerker. But in retrospect, most of the final season led up to a final duel. Uh, and it was over with little fanfare towards the beginning of the finale, so that was kind of weird. Like, the whole last season was just, this guy's coming, he's going to fight the Candy Kingdom, and then the one-hour finale, that guy gets defeated in, like, the first 15 minutes. Spoiler alert, sorry, but he really just doesn't even matter. That was weird. But this is Adventure Time. Um, really, it just takes 
my favorite attributes of so many lower spots in this list, it combines them. It has the world building from Korra, the zaniness of BFDI, the diverse cast of supporting characters like regular show and gumball, and the unique art style to boot like so many other things on this list. As somebody who loves to doodle, I really took a lot away from Adventure Time's art style. Noodle arms and big heads are like a staple of how I draw now. <laughs> Uh, the show is incredibly charming, it's great at storytelling, it's perhaps the pinnacle of 2010's animation, so of course Adventure Time deserves a spot on this list. Number three, we have Bob's Burgers. Part of me is surprised that Bob's Burgers made it so high onto this list, considering that when I started, I almost left it out. <laughs> I forgot about it. It's one of those cartoons I only watch every couple months, but it's consistent and reliable every time I return to it. Out of the remaining spots in this list, Bob's Burgers is probably in the run for the funniest, uh, which is not nothing to laugh at, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, but out of the last number three, two, and one, it's probably the funniest, I think, because it's just, every time I watch an episode, I'll laugh. Bob's Burgers follows the adventures of the Belcher family, Bob, Linda, and their three kids as they traverse the trials and tribulations of running their family burger joint. Uh, it does rely on that quirky for the sake of quirky aesthetic that I'm really not a big fan of. I'm not in love with its art style, and like all shows that go on for this long, it suffers from seasonal rot. The newer episodes always tend to involve a generic plot about the kids and their friends at school. Bob and Linda get shoved into some background subplot. That's like almost always what they do for their episodes now. But what keeps Bob's Burgers above the seasonal rot of regular show Gumball and Adventure Time is it actually stays pretty funny. Even in its most recent season, the show's quick-witted writing, they almost always have me laughing throughout each episode. Um, which I can't always say for the later episodes of Gumball Regular Show and Adventure Time. The world of Bob's Burgers and all of its random zany side characters, it's delightful, hilarious world, giving us such memorable characters ranging from the jealous, overdramatic health inspector Hugo to the pathetic, insecure cat lady Aunt Gail to the immature pizza owner and Bob's perpetual rival Jimmy Pesto. Every time one of those side characters walks through the door to the burger place, you, you, you know you're in for a treat personal favorite i think is when bob gets the arcade machine installed in his restaurant and jimmy pesto comes in gets the high score and the name is bob sucks <laughs> so bob has to spend like the whole next week trying to beat the high score that's it, so fun uh, my uncertain feelings on the art style and the modern story arcs aside bob's burger is bob's burgers is pretty close to a perfect comedy geared towards adults and teenagers kids can reasonably watch it and without any of the obnoxious self-righteousness that accompanies The Simpsons or Family Guy nowadays, not to mention much better writing. Number two is another tie. <laughs> Whoops. This time between BoJack Horseman and F is for Family. Another cop-out. I know, technically speaking, it's a top 12 list, but for all intents and purposes, I'm counting these ties as equally great cartoons like I did for regular show and Gumball. BoJack Horseman is probably 10 times more famous than F is for Family, which, if you ask me, is a real travesty. Both complement each other very well. Two of the earliest Netflix original cartoons, both geared towards adults. But whereas BoJack takes on celebrity and trivializes it, F is for Family takes on the trivial and celebritizes it. Celebritize is an actual real word. A word. <laughs> Who knew? BoJack follows a cynical, alcoholic, washed-up 90s sitcom star as he tries to make a comeback in the 2010s, surrounded by four key side characters, his annoying former rival, Mr. Peanut Butter, his agent and former girlfriend, Princess Carolyn, his deadbeat roommate, Todd, and his ghostwriter-turned-best friend, Diane. 
And the whole thing takes place in a world where half the population is human and half the population is anthropomorphic animals. But this isn't really treated like a thing that anyone notices. Like there's no species racism or anything like that. Maybe they'll make a pun out of it every now and then. Um, just roll with it. <laughs> F is for Family, meanwhile, takes place in the 1970s. Follows a stubborn, sailor-mouthed, middle-class man named Frank Murphy as he struggles to provide for his dysfunctional family, including his wife Sue, wannabe musician son Kevin, cowardly son Bill, and spoiled daughter Maureen. Comedian Bill Burr voices Frank, and in fact the whole show is his brainchild. BoJack is probably one of the emotionally deepest shows out there, let alone deepest cartoons. It is incredibly analytical and critical of celebrity culture, which it picks apart in a really fantastic way. I can't really think of any other shows that have been as successful in that avenue as BoJack. Efforts for Family, on the other hand, prefers to look at the family unit and how through thick and thin, it always comes together in the end. BoJack plays around with the importance of family as well, especially as the show goes on, but Efforts for Family is just much stronger in its presentation. Both shows are out of the park at what they do. BoJack and his friends navigating Hollywood provide some really great stories, a ton of gripping drama, and of course, stellar comedy. Um, Evans for Family comes in second place, I think, to BoJack's intricate stories, but it beats it with heart. Granted, BoJack really isn't going for heart most of the time, but that doesn't mean Evans for Family can't be effective with what it does. <laughs> Though the Murphys are always at each other's throats, they always come through for each other in the end. They're like the Simpsons, but their dysfunctionality is much more heavily explored. Watching Evans for Family kind of feels like watching a more self-aware sitcom. But both shows are completely hilarious. I would, again, give BoJack the edge on its comedy, I think. But F's for Family's one-liners can really send you reeling. Uh, this is Bill Burr, after all. As for animation, both are okay. I really love the 70s color palettes all over the place in F's for Family. The animation isn't amazing. BoJack isn't really winning any awards for fluid animation either. Art style is kind of cool. But it's clear that neither show really went all in on animation. They paid much more attention to stories, humor, and characters. It's fine by me. Between giving BoJack the slight edge on humor, storytelling, and animation, you might be wondering how I consider these two shows tied. <clears throat> the answer is that, as BoJack went on, some of its token comedy and storytelling started lacking. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't say seasonal rot, because the last few seasons, and especially what they did with BoJack, they were incredibly gripping. But they started getting pointlessly like political, to the point where it actually harmed the plot. Uh, here's an example. Diane gets a gun, I think, at some point, and it looks like it's supposed to incorporate into her character. She's like, oh, I feel, like, safer, blah, blah, blah. And it was a time where Diane really wasn't doing much in the show. Um, and then guns get banned, and it's like, oh, it's a gun, a cheap little gun control joke. Um, and it just kind of makes Diane do nothing. <laughs> uh, and another example, the first half of the last season makes it feel like this evil big businessman will become the major antagonist. Like, oh, I own half the world, like, blah, 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 capitalism, this. Uh, and then the second half of the last season, he never even shows up. So, a little weirdly unorganized. I feel like a lot of it's just for political digs instead of storytelling. Don't even get me started on the finale. My, my brothers and I were on the edge of our seats during the second-to-last episode. Uh, I'll be blunt and avoid spoilers, but BoJack confronts death and mortality. And then the finale, it's all back to smiles. Bojack doing, like, puppet shows in a prison, and then he's doing a stupid little TV show about a unicorn, and then the last few minutes of the episode happen before you know it. It's moving. The final farewells to all the main characters, bittersweet. I really like how they did that. Um, the final moment with Bojack and Diane's nice, but I left it feeling a little underwhelmed, I think. Um, my brothers and I were kind of talking about, like, oh, maybe the second season, how it ended, should have been how it ended, and then, like, you have an episode 
after that dealing with the consequences of it. But I digress. I'm being needlessly vague to avoid spoilers. I get that the showrunners were hoping for another season, and what they managed to accomplish was quite impressive after being told, like, heads up, this is going to be your last season. Uh, but Ezra Family has never really made me cringe <laughs> with any of its jokes. Um, so it kind of gets the leg up there. Equal t- uh, becomes tied. Either way, both shows are absolutely amazing examples of how adult animation can tackle serious issues like that of family, loneliness, and mortality. They don't have to resort to 50 sex jokes per episode and somebody turning themselves into a pickle. Ephesus Family in particular is just so terribly underrated, so I definitely think it deserves a watch. But that sells BoJack short. You know, just watch them both. They're both incredible. Um, And finally, we reach number one. Big Mouth. By far, the best cartoon of the 2010s is not Big Mouth. Don't worry. Just a fake out for you. Ha. No, seriously. Number one, Gravity Falls. Okay. It's a bit predictable. I get it. I picked one of the highest rated cartoons of all time for my spot on number one. But that's the whole point. It got popular for a reason. For those of you who haven't seen it, I could not recommend a show more than this one. If you have Disney Plus, I'm pretty sure it's on there. Please, please, please watch it. I have no excuse not to rewatch it myself, honestly. Anyway, Gravity Falls follows the adventures of twins Dipper and Mabel as they go to the small town of Gravity Falls to stay with their great uncle for the summer. Along the way, they make friends, battle monsters, they uncover strange mysteries about the town and those who inhabit it. That doesn't even feel like I'm doing the show justice, but like BoJack and Evans for Family, I'm just instinctively avoiding spoilers, though maybe I've been doing that for the most part. Some exceptions for Korra. Sorry, Korra, you know I love you, (laughs) but I did spoil you a little bit. Enough about the number 10 spot. We're at number one now. Gravity Falls deserves nothing less in my eyes. Incredible characters. My personal favorite is always the crazy but lovable con artist Grunkle Stan. Uh, yeah, so great characters, solid humor, wonderful animation, and by far this show's greatest attribute is its incredible storytelling. This show kept my interest peaked from the first episode to the credits of the finale and e- almost every moment in between. No other cartoon can boast of such a fantastic story arc from start to finish. Even the other incredible shows on this list. Korda might have been able to do it, but its disappointing finale and choice to split into four overarching stories don't really let it. Bojack comes close. I've already voiced my annoyances, though, about the final season. Plus, it really doesn't go for the huge plot that traverses the whole show. It's more like DuckTales and Korra, where it's different plot overarching every season. Although, Bojack also brings back a bunch of past elements. I, I'm Whatever, I'm not talking about Bojack. I'm talking about Gravity Falls. Uh, Gravity Falls is not perfect. Few cartoons are. No cartoons are, actually. The heroic sacrifice at the end of the finale of Gravity Falls that gets undone five minutes later, that was a cop-out. That was kind of dumb, in my opinion. Uh, I do tend to agree with the school of thought that Mabel is really annoying sometimes. Uh, I do think it's beneficial, though, to have two tween protagonists, one who likes to act older than he is, which is Dipper, and then one who likes to act younger, which is Mabel. It makes Mabel seem immature throughout the show, sometimes to the obnoxious degree, but... Especially in the finale, I think they kind of addressed this in Weird Mageddon 2, I think. Um, and it really works for playing off Dipper. Cause it's, it works. They're tweens. They're right on the edge of being childs, childs, being children and being teens. So you got one who acts bigger than his britches, one who acts less. It, it makes sense. I, I, I like it, even though it's a little annoying sometimes. I digress, though. Gravity Falls is the best cartoon of the 2010s, earning itself the number one spot on this list because it is the best storyteller on this list. 
It plays around with mysteries in a creative way that no cartoons had done before. It creates characters and environments that you really care about, and it leaves you with a perfectly satisfying ending, yet still allows some questions to be left unanswered. <sighs> so we're only about seven months into the new decade, meaning we have 113 months to go. No rush, of course. I'm in no, you know, extreme hurry. Uh, but hopefully in that time, incredible new cartoons will appear, the likes of BoJack Horseman and Gravity Falls, as well as the other cartoons in this list. The only series on here that are still continuing are Battle for Dream Island, because again, it's independent, and then DuckTales, Bob's Burgers, and F is for Family. And these shows surely cannot and should not continue forever. I'm in my 20s now. I'm busy with life and other hobbies. I don't even really watch TV anymore, let alone cartoons. So I don't know how important the future of animation with cartoons will be to me personally. But I think children and teens should have the fortune to grow up with a wide array of amazing and original content. Because that's the privilege I got with some of these. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Listening to me nerd out about cartoons. If nothing else, I hope I've at least given you some ideas for your next binge. Be sure to join our Discord and keep an eye out for upcoming content. I'm Matt, and this has been a Geeks Crossing podcast. See you later.